Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Denny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And D- Derek, did you hear that? Did I hear what? That's the news, baby. Let's get into okay. it. Okay. So All there's right. a lot of news this week. Uh, and why don't we start with the U.S. Saudi relationship? So, uh, if people have not listened to our uh, interview with Greg Brew about last week's OPEC plus uh, oil production cut, uh, that would cover the background to this story. But the the thing that I got to check out on the specials, is, everyone. That's where um, the meat is cooked. Yeah, uh, old phrase. <laughs> th- what this cut is currently doing to the U.S. Saudi relationship. Uh, there have been a number of calls from some fairly high-level uh, places in Washington, uh, especially among Democrats in Congress, including Bob Menendez, who happens to be the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, so somebody who is actually um, in a position to affect policy, uh, calling for a reevaluation of the U.S.-Saudi relationship, freezing military assistance to the Saudis, you know, basically trying to punish them for uh, having gone ahead with this Production cut. I'm not going to get into what I'd consider and what I have in mind, but there will be there will be consequences. Uh, the Biden administration reacted to this criticism earlier this week uh, by telling reporters basically that President Biden is going to uh, or does want to revisit. That was a, a quote uh, from the White House: "The U.S.-Saudi relationship." There was a report in the Wall Street Journal also earlier this week that, to the effect of not only. Uh, did the Saudis feel comfortable going ahead with the production cut, uh, you know, with the U.S. kind of, you know, asking them not to? They ignored uh, a demand or a request, I should say, from the administration to put off the production cut even for a month. The uh, framing here, I mean, the obvious implication here is that the administration wanted to put the production cut off until after the midterm elections so that this would not uh, affect Democrats' chances of retaining control of Congress. The Saudis then uh, on Thursday, as much as it acknowledged this, I mean, they, they confirmed the Wall Street Journal report and said openly that this was a political move by the Biden administration, uh, you know, trying to embarrass the Biden administration you know, in, in a somewhat angry response to all this criticism that they've been taking from Washington, um, you know, said, you know, they kind of cravenly asked us to, to please put it off to minimize the political impact. The administration then responded, uh, with an angry statement of its own, uh, saying that what they'd actually asked the Saudis to do was to put off any oil cuts or production cuts until it looked like the market was heading in a direction where cuts would make sense. They, they said they presented the Saudis with a lot of evidence that there's no slack in the marketplace right now, so the cuts were not necessary. Uh, they also intimated, uh, the White House did, that uh, the Saudis strong-armed other members of OPEC Plus into agreeing to this cutback and that, that they had spoken to unnamed other members of the, the bloc who disagreed with the decision but felt compelled to go along with it anyway, which is, uh, that's kind of fighting words uh, for the Saudis who always insist that any decision made in this forum is collective and it's not just them. They're not controlling things. They're not puppet masters. They're not trying to work out their uh, 
you know, issues with Joe Biden and the oil market. So, um, you know, really kind of a direct slap uh, in the face at their narrative. So things are not good, basically, in the U.S.-Saudi relationship. We are sniping at one another. And, um, you know, I don't uh, I don't know where or how this will get turned around. So that's what I was going to ask. Do you think this augurs an actual change in the relationship? Do you think this is it? this is a hinge point or is this just going to be some anger, some bluster and things return to normal in a few months? Um, I, I already am thinking it's anger and bluster and things will return to normal in a few months because uh, I believe the Pentagon uh, on either Wednesday or Thursday said uh, military cooperation with the Saudis is not going to be affected. Now that doesn't necessarily mean there won't be uh, questions about arms sales or arm, you know, weapon supplies to the Saudis. But the idea that, you know, some of the, the things that have been uh, talked about in Congress, pulling U.S. forces, pulling U.S. air defense batteries in particular out of Saudi Arabia, cutting off cooperation on the war in Yemen, which is still sort of simmering, um, uh, that doesn't seem to be on the table at this point. And that's really the, the only meaningful thing that the administration uh, can do. To, if it wants, if it really wants to make the Saudis pay here, if it wants to make the Saudis feel uh, some impact from this production cut, that's it. And if they're not prepared to do that, then I don't think they're really prepared to to do much of anything. Let's stay in the region, and Derek, let us know about the Israel-Lebanon maritime deal that was recently, uh, I guess, an agreement was come to. Yes. So this has been. Uh, in the cards for a while now, the U.S. has been trying to broker a deal between the Lebanese and Israeli governments to demarcate their maritime border, which has been, uh, you know, undemarcated for since time immemorial, basically, and uh, since the Lebanese and Israeli governments are still technically uh, in a state of conflict with one another, uh, they're not negotiating the issue directly. So what happened uh, last week, the U.S. presented a draft uh, resolution, a a draft kind of uh, demarcation to both sides. And they responded, they seemed to respond uh, fairly positively. But then the Lebanese government tacked on some changes that it wanted to see in this document. And the Israelis rejected those changes uh, I think partly for political reasons, because it's not Israel's about a month, less than a month at this point uh, away from a snap election. It would not do for the current Israeli government to uh, look like it's kowtowing to Lebanese demands about uh, what is a sensitive political issue. Uh, so the United States uh, went back uh, over the weekend, apparently worked out a, a new draft agreement, presented it to the two sides. Uh, earlier this week, and they have both, uh, at least verbally, accepted uh, this new draft as as uh, acceptable for them for for their needs. Uh, even Hezbollah, which had been you know resistant to the idea of well, a lot of this has to do with offshore gas fields. I'll talk about that in a moment. But they've been threatening to you know attack Israel or attack Israeli interests if they started exploiting these fields. Uh, Hezbollah said it's it's comfortable with the the new offer from the U.S. Uh, so it sounds like everybody's okay. Uh, I, you know, again, it's it's sort of a verbal agreement at this point. But uh, what this does potentially is it unlocks a couple of 
uh, major natural gas fields that are located in the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, one, the Karish field uh, will be treated as entirely Israeli. They'll, they'll be able to exploit it. They're already in position to start doing that fairly quickly. They need to build a pipeline, I think, to bring the gas on shore and then they can start shipping it out, which tangentially, you know, impacts uh, the situation in Europe where they're looking, you know, casting a wide net for alternatives to Russian natural gas. Um, the other field that was in question is called Kana Field. Uh, Lebanon gets control over that field uh, in terms of drafting contracts, hiring a, you know firms to to exploit it to get the gas out. But they will have to pay uh, some portion of the revenue they extract from that field in in royalties to the Israelis. Apparently, it was uh, this was enough for them to agree, and they've now you know drawn the. Uh, or they will be drawing the line in the Mediterranean that separates uh, their two waters, which could mean more exploration. I'm not sure, you know, I'm not uh, certain if if these are the only two fields anybody's found here, if there's still more exploration to be done. But whatever the process, it's been hindered by this dispute. So that's over now, presumably, and everybody can move forward on these projects. Thank goodness. We're just really happy about that here in American. Always happy to hear more extraction of fossil fuels. More extraction. It's one of our guiding guiding principles. That that should actually be our slogan. We should put it on the uh, American Gothic logo. (laughs) Just more extraction. Uh, All right, let's move on uh, over to Iraq. And and Derek, could you give us a political update? Yeah, this is just happening as we're... um, talking here. The uh, Iraqi parliament met on Thursday. They have agreed to elect Abdul Latif Rashid, who is uh, apparently former minister of water resources for the Iraqi transitional government. Uh, He's been a spokesperson for the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan. He is now uh, the new president of Iraq. The question now is whether or not uh, the the newly elected president would be able to uh, assign a new prime minister to form uh, the government, given the fact that this is so controversial. Iraqi politics have been in gridlock for over a year since the last election, as parliament has tried to elect a president and a new government. People will remember Muqtada Sadr, the political grandee with a militia and and lots of very passionate followers, uh, won October's election. His party won October's election, but then was unable to form a government. He wanted to form a strictly majority government rather than one of these national unity governments that Iraq has kind of stuck with since the U.S. invasion. Uh, He was blocked in trying to do that by rivals in the Iraqi Shia community. Uh, He then, in a huff, pulled all of his uh, party members out of parliament. They were replaced mostly with people who are uh, opposed to Sadr. And then, you know, there's been tension, there have been protests. At one point, Sadr's followers occupied the parliament building to prevent a government being formed. But it looks like they are now on the verge of forming a government. So uh, this is going to be done without Sadr's input, I guess. Uh, so he may have uh, kind of overplayed his hand in, in, in pulling out of parliament. Electing a president is not the final step. It is only the first step in forming a government, but it's a necessary one because the president, although the Iraqi office of the president is, is fairly weak, uh, the president nevertheless legally is the one who is supposed to nominate a prime minister candidate. So now that will probably be the next step. Uh, and I, I'm, as far as I know, the, the, uh, the parties have a slate, uh, like a cabinet, ready to go. So that shouldn't take uh, too long now that they've achieved this. I should note, while this vote was going on, uh, some enterprising uh, folks 
fired uh, uh, something like nine rockets uh, toward the parliament building. Uh, some, I think, 10 people were wounded in this attack. It would be uh, fair to speculate that these were Sadr's supporters who fired the rockets to try and disrupt the vote, uh, although there are certainly other candidates uh, for, you know, possible uh, suspects here. But it, it sounds like, you know, even even though the government is now, you know, on the way to being formed, the political tensions that have been gripping Iraq for some time now are probably going to continue. Uh, I'm just so glad that we invaded the country and have created a, a, a beautiful democracy. It's a paradise. It just, yeah, it's a, it's it's, a functioning you're welcome. democracy, and uh, it's good stuff. You're welcome, Iraq. Uh, so let's stay in the region and move on to Iran. And Derek, can you give us an update on the protests there? Yes. Uh, I just have a, a sort of brief update here. The The protests have are continuing their approaching week four at this point uh the end of week four they're kind of uh, you know in week four now since the the i should say the death of masa amini which kicked off these protests Ira- iranian security forces have been intensifying steadily intensifying their crackdown against the protests uh, especially in kurdish regions of the country where they've been uh, the most heated and the security forces have been uh, at their most repressive estimates from uh, at least the the Iran human rights NGO are that at least 185 people have been killed uh, over these last uh, few weeks uh, in amid the protests. There were signs this week that the demonstrations are expanding uh, beyond, uh, I would say, you know, women and college students and young people, sort of the that category of people who are uh, maybe most activated by the idea of women's rights and and the the pressures that the morality police puts on uh, on Iranian society. There were indications that it's expanding to professional groups now, you know, maybe going on strike, doctors, lawyers, that sort of thing. Um, even into the Iranian energy sector, there were protests, walkouts by uh, oil and gas workers uh, in part of Iran earlier this week. That would be a huge deal if that's true. There's some evidence to suggest that maybe they're not exactly motivated by the Amini death, but rather by other demands or other, you know, kind of grievances with the Iranian government. To be honest, I'm not sure that the motivations matter as much as the fact that all these different sectors seem to be uh, kind of hitting the streets now. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, I would hearken back to the 79 revolution where, you know, every part of society had its own reasons for uh, opposing the Shah. Uh, but they all wanted the same thing, which was change in government. And that seems to be uh, where things are now in Iran. So, um, you know, not not a nothing major to say here, but just some indications that one, this is certainly not ending anytime soon. These protests are not ending anytime soon. And two, they may be actually uh, widening a bit. So there's a war happening in Ethiopia. Why don't we talk about that for a second? Yeah, again, this is sort of just a short update. Um, there were supposed to be peace talks uh, last weekend uh, in South Africa that were going to involve uh, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the now kind of outlawed rebel group in, in Ethiopia and the Ethiopian government. Uh, they were going to be mediated by a three-person panel. Uh, those talks did not happen. It seems that the African Union, which was the uh, mediator, the broker, uh, of these negotiations decided to go ahead 
uh, even though the TPLF had been asking questions about who's going to be there, what role is everybody going to play, and how's it going to work, and the AU didn't really have any good answers for them, and so the TPLF decided they weren't going to participate. And so those talks were, uh, they say postponed, I would say canceled, but, you know, postponed until some other time is indefinitely postponed, basically. Uh, so we'll have to see if they circle back around to that. The other thing of note is the, the TPLF earlier this week, Tuesday, Wednesday, accused the Eritrean military, which has been uh, kind of active along the border and invading uh, Tigray from the north in, in collaboration with the Ethiopian government. Uh, they accused the Eritreans of widening their offensive in northern Tigray. Um, you know, I should say any... Claims like this are difficult to verify because Ethiopia's media environment is challenging under the best of circumstances and Tigray is fairly uh, isolated, especially northern Tigray is fairly remote, uh, so it can be difficult to confirm anything. But there have been a number of third parties who have at least confirmed that the Eritrean military is is over the border and operating in uh Tigray at this point. Whether they've widened their offensive in the last few days, I, I can't say, but um, they are definitely, you know, there and they're they're operating in Tigrayan territory. Let's head over to the Western Hemisphere and talk about Haiti, what's going on there, and the potential of international intervention. Uh, so Prime Minister Ariel Henry and a number of officials in his government sent a letter, uh, kind of open letter to uh, interested parties, the UN, the US, etc., uh, asking uh, earlier this week for an armed international intervention, essentially, to help deal with gang activity. Now, the main problem with the gangs right now is that they're blockading the main fuel terminal in Port-au-Prince, which is preventing businesses from getting fuel. Uh, it's preventing hospitals, uh, supposedly hospitals, schools, et cetera. They're, they're having to consider uh, cutbacks, closures, and things of that nature because they're not able to, to get enough fuel to operate. Um, the UN Security Council met on Monday to consider the possibility of deploying a multinational peacekeeping force to Haiti. Uh, the Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, submitted a letter asking for such a such a force. He's also called on UN members to do what they can to uh, try and help here. Uh, the uh, Biden administration, in the for- in the person of Secretary of State Antony Blinken, said on Wednesday that the administration is uh, trying to... Uh, increase security assistance to the Haitian National Police. Uh, it's trying to speed up the delivery delivery of humanitarian aid to Haiti. Uh, it is considering the possibility of a military intervention, but has not decided on one yet. Um, and uh, meanwhile, in Haiti, if you actually uh, talk to any Haitians, uh, thousands of them turned out in Port-au-Prince on Monday to protest against the idea of foreign intervention. Uh this is not terribly surprising, considering that last time, the last time they got UN intervention, 2004 to 2017, the UN brought with it cholera, among other things, uh, which is now endemic in Haiti and has flared up again recently. There were also allegations of uh, kind of serial sexual violence on the part of UN peacekeepers. So uh, Haiti has not had a good uh, history with the U.S. I mean, you know, people are probably familiar with that history, uh, but it hasn't even really had a good history with UN interventions. Uh, so people are, uh, I think, understandably not terribly keen to uh, to go down this road. But Henri has asked for it, and it seems like it's under consideration. 
Thanks, Derek. Um, and now let's go to the other side of the world for a second and talk about Ukraine. Uh, so, I, yeah, I just wanted to say happy birthday to Vladimir Putin. It was his 70th birthday uh, last Friday. So, uh, you know, many happy birthdays. He's a fellow Libra. Uh, to him. He's a, he's, uh, yeah, he's a good, Libra like good me. Good guy. Uh, the, uh, the Ukrainians decided to commemorate his birthday on Saturday with a massive truck bomb. Uh, or apparently uh, the Ukrainians, I don't know, they've, there's been a little, they've been a little coy on this, but it's obviously, it was obviously their operation. Uh, a truck bomb that uh, severely damaged the, the bridge running across the Kerch Strait that connects Russia to Crimea. Russia's foreign ministry said Ukraine's reaction to the bridge collapse shows, quote, their terrorist nature. So I'm unclear as to just how damaged the bridge was, at least one uh, entire kind of segment of car, you know, car, one of the car lanes was knocked into the uh, ocean. The the rail line that runs parallel to this bridge and on which the Russian military has been moving assets into southern Ukraine was was heavily damaged. I think there's still it's still usable, but um, definitely damaged and a, and and symbolically a, a blow certainly to Russian claims of ownership over Crimea in particular. The Russian military responded to this bombing uh, on Monday and Tuesday with a heavy barrage of missiles targeting major Ukrainian cities, mostly targeting infrastructure. Uh, there have been a number of blackouts, power outages. There's some concern now about whether or not some of this infrastructure can be rebuilt uh, before winter, before the onset of the, the kind of meat of the, uh, the regional winter, which would be helpful for people who are, uh, you know, trying to make it through that season. Uh, I suspect that the Russians had this, um, operation, this missile barrage planned and ready to go, uh, before the bridge bombing. Certainly Russian hawks have been calling, demanding, uh, something like this, uh, all going all the way back to the, uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive in Kharkiv uh, last month that was so successful. Uh, they've been demanding, uh, you know, kind of gloves off attacks on on civilian infrastructure. Uh, so I suspect they already had this ready to go, but the bridge probably, you know, was the the precipitating incident that that um, made them decide to implement it. The missile attacks have sort of caused a shift, I would say, in the. Uh, discourse over Western weapon supplies to Ukraine away from kind of long range artillery, which has been the, the thing the Ukrainians have been demanding, uh, and to air defense systems. Uh, so the German government supplied, uh, the first of what it promises will be four Iris T air defense systems. These are supposed to be brand new. They haven't been, you know, even the German military doesn't have them yet, but the Ukrainians are getting them. Uh, the United States, the Biden administration has been talking about sending national advanced surface to air missile systems to Ukraine for some time now. It's, it now says it will speed that up. Uh, Ukrainian, or I should say NATO, sorry, uh, defense ministers and, and senior military officers met on Wednesday in Brussels to talk more about, you know, their support for Ukraine. And uh, again, air defenses were sort of the, the main topic of conversation with a lot of promises of new systems, new ammunition, all, you know, to be uh, expedited to, to whatever extent possible. The other thing to note is uh, there was a, a vote in the UN General Assembly on Wednesday to condemn uh, the Russian annexation, put that in quotes if you want, of uh, 
the four Ukrainian provinces it partially occupies. Uh, that would be Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson, and, and Zaporizhia. Uh, the vote was 143 to 5 to condemn the annexation. Uh, 35 countries abstained. There were something like 10 uh, countries that didn't vote at all. You know, I mean, the UN General Assembly is a, a symbolic body. Anything that you vote on there is is purely symbolic. But the Russians had had asked for uh, a secret ballot, thinking that maybe if votes weren't going to be made public, they might get a little, you know, a few countries that were uh, willing to either abstain or to to even vote not to condemn the the annexation. Uh, they didn't get that. The vote was public and and you know, probably a little more lopsided than they would have liked. It's it's somewhat. Uh, and somewhat of an embarrassing outcome for them. Thank you, Derek. Um, so now let's end on the new national security strategy issued by the Biden administration. Maybe briefly, you could just explain what the national security strategy is for people who might not know. So, uh, yeah, the national security strategy is a document that administrations periodically put out to kind of say what they're what they feel the key national security issues uh, facing the United States are. They are vague by nature. Uh, they're not terribly illustrative. They're certainly not as illustrative in terms of priorities as, say, the annual military budget. Uh, you know, you can, you can get a better sense of what the priorities are from where the Pentagon puts its money or where it requests the money from than you can from these strategy documents. But they do, you know, they are worth kind of reading through, picking apart uh, every time they come up. So the administration... Uh, unveiled its 2022 security strategy on um, Thursday, a little bit overdue, but uh, you know, still good. Uh, or on Wednesday, sorry, not Thursday. It is uh, a hodgepodge of stuff. Uh, I think uh, the main takeaway I would have is uh, basically uh, its essential incoherence around China. China is the focus of much of the document. Uh, we're told, for example, that the post-Cold War era is over, suggesting that we're in a new Cold War with China, but we're also told that we're not, we don't want to be in a Cold War with China, but we are competing with China, but we don't want to have a rivalry with China. Uh, and we also want to work with China to deal with things like climate change and pandemics. And it's, it's fundamentally, uh, I mean, this is the, the incoherence that, that has been apparent in U.S.-China policy for uh, I would say years now, but it's it's funny kind of to read it uh, all collected here in a document that kind of veers back and forth from this is the big enemy now to we have to work together to we don't want to be enemies, but we're we are, and you know it's it's uh, it's just sort of all over the map, which um, you know is is you know that's where we are. We're we're doing Cold War 2.0, but please don't call it a Cold War. Uh, and also we know that. This is a bad idea because we've got all these things happening that uh, really demand collaboration, not competition. And yet we're, we're going to do competition anyway. So typical American foresight, good, medium and long term thinking. We just fully endorse the national security strategy here. On Absolutely. American Prestige. <laughs> all right, Derek, thank you so much. We saw the news and we conquered it and we'll see you all soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.